So now we're talking about vital strategies. Uh, sometimes when we think about strategies for discipleship, uh, you remember that first session I mentioned that we often think of a sort of uh, some thing we graduate from, some class we take, some program we go through. And, and let me just say that I'm not against any of those things. They're just not in the same category in my mind. Discipleship isn't that. Those, those are methodological ways that we plug people into relationships and facilitate this dynamic as a church. That's fine. I mean, that's natural and normal. If you want to build a friendship with someone, you start asking if you can spend some time together, and you work that out logistically. That's really no different than what we do as a church when we think, okay, how can we facilitate the reality of these relationships that we're encouraging these men to have? And so that's fine, but, but discipleship itself is much more grassroots it's much more, uh, you know, sort of the heart and inner life uh, principles from Scripture. And when you interact with one another, a vital strategy has to really do with, with what we've been commanded to do in one another's lives. It can't be about something I've made up in my own mind. Discipleship is about doing what Jesus asked us to do. And so I've just kind of built a, 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 an approach to relationships, regardless of how they start, uh, the, the approach is the same. This is exactly what I want to do with every influence that I have in a relationship. So discipleship isn't merely just a, a new convert you led to Christ and then you take him from start to finish or as long as they're around you. That's great. That's wonderful. That's one scenario. It isn't merely some friendship that you grew up with or, or as someone told me uh, today, you know, someone comes up to someone else and says, hey, I see some things in your life, and I want, to, I want you to teach me those things. That's another uh, beginning point for a discipleship dynamic. Sometimes, as I told you last session, it's a crisis. You get called in to help someone in the throes of life's greatest traumas, and suddenly a discipleship dynamic is born. Regardless of the scenario and how it happens, I believe the approach ought to be uh, the same, and, and while we could gather all kinds of specific ways to work it out, I just want to talk about a few principles that, that are on my mind no matter how a relationship begins, no matter how direct or indirect my influence will be. So the first principle I want to talk about comes from Romans 12, and, and it'll be... Uh, easy to understand if we just go to Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is the principle of renovation. The principle of renovation. Okay, so I said to you that first session, when you've been with somebody, are they more like Christ having been with you, having been influenced by you? Well, the only way biblically to, to make that happen is by the Spirit's renewing work. And this is, as Paul says in Romans 12, our most obvious and reasonable response to the gospel, right? 11 chapters of the mercies of God, chapter 12, verse 1, therefore I urge you because of these mercies of God to offer your bodies or present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It's a strange way for the NAS to translate it. It's actually most reasonable or most obvious or the thing that would make most sense and anything else makes no sense. If you've had these mercies from God, this is your response. To become a living sacrifice. Uh, you know, when Abraham took Isaac to the mountain, Isaac was about to become a dead sacrifice. 
Abraham in that moment is the living sacrifice because he is putting on the altar everything that God had promised and all that he'd hoped in and, and was thrilled about. And he'd waited for it. I mean, you remember what happened. He went to the land of Canaan and he was there 10 years after he'd already been promised a son. There's no, there's no son. They're surrounded by enemies. There's no child of promise. And of course, chapter 16, he gets into that mess because he tries to work it out on his own. And the, and the Arab world was born. And uh, tragically, they had been, as God prophesied, a, a donkey of a, of a series of generations and nations who would be against his people all their life in the Old Covenant. And, and in that season, you know, after the mess, he still hadn't had the child of promise. Well, then he gets him. Isaac is born. Wow, this is incredible. And Ishmael's 12 years old by then, so he's got to send Ishmael out because that's, that's not a good thing. Ishmael could literally take the life of this child of promise because there's no way Ishmael was going to be the child of promise. And so Isaac's an infant. So, you know, they split up and, and uh, nonetheless, here he's asked by God shortly after to take Isaac, you know, just 10, 15 years later to take Isaac to the mountain and put him on the altar. So Isaac's about to be the dead sacrifice. Abraham's dreams and hopes and, and his relationship with God is on the line and God says, I want you to do this, your son, your only son, your only beloved son. And so in that sense, he's, he's about to become the living sacrifice. And Paul pulls that imagery here into Romans 12 to say that your most reasonable response to the gospel is to give yourself over to this, this uh, sacrificial life of worship, and it involves a principle of life that is the current, the constant current of the Christian's sanctification work. Notice verse 2. Right after telling us this is your reasonable service and it is your act of worship, he says, now don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. And the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect, complete, that which doesn't leave any loose ends. So in discipleship, I love to, to start here because I can, I can work with someone on the principle of renovation all the time. doesn't matter how the relationship began. I'm going to work on the principle of the renewing of their thinking. The verb here literally could, could be translated to renovate, to completely overhaul, you know, take it back to the, to the foundation, to the studs, rebuild it, utterly redo it. Our thinking and our convictions have to be utterly redone. When you get in someone's life, you know, I'll sit down with someone with whom I'm going to have this discipleship dynamic, and I will ask them, so what, what would you like to see happen in your Christian life? And in them telling me their testimony and telling me about the Christian life, and in telling me what they think the, the issues are, I begin to help them formulate where the flaws are in their convictions and in their thinking where renovation has to happen, where renewal has to take place. And that's all I need. All we need is a list together of the, the ways that they presently think and the convictions they presently live by, and they do live by them. Everyone lives by convictions. The choices you make reflect the convictions you have. They just might not be biblical. And so in every relationship, I begin here because if I can help them identify the flaws the fundamental flaws in the way they think about truth and the way they think about their relationship with God, now we can begin to tackle uh, the, the foundations of what is weak in their life 
And they're on their way to being a living sacrifice and offering themselves as worship to God. So it's very simple. It becomes very practical to me. I want to renovate their reasoning, the way they reason things out. The more you know someone, the more you know how they think about why they do what they do. Uh, you might find out what they think about marriage and, and how they live their marriage out, and you find out it's flawed, and I have to go after that. You, you might find that they don't understand the sovereignty of God, so they have a theology proper uh, error in their mind and in their convictions. They don't think about God rightly. Maybe they don't think about their salvation rightly. Uh, and there's a flaw there, and, and anytime you think wrongly about your salvation, it will affect your practical life. Anytime you think wrongly about God, it will, reflect, it will reflect itself in your practical life, how you respond to trials, how you, how you think about uh, your own sin and guilt. So I'm just looking for the areas that need to be overhauled and renovated in their convictions and in their, in their uh, thinking. You have to start with the thinking here. You might even find a flaw in the way that they think about sanctification. Maybe they think they, you need to begin with some outward practical thing, and that's sanctification, when really their inner life is the problem, idolatry. Or you might find that they're pop psychologized, and, and they have all these notions about uh, you know, the, the, that their behavior is excusable because of pressure that came upon them, and they have sort of a Rogerian view or a Freudian view of how man works. And you've got to come along and help them with the flaws in their thinking about how we change. And uh, any flaw, and, and typically I go after the big ones, you know, a flaw, flawed thinking about God. Flaws in their thinking about Christ and salvation and scripture and its authority. Flawed thinking about, uh, you know, how we grow in Christ. And as I'm doing that, it helps me um, begin to help them identify, and you, you know this because you have a, a very robust uh, sort of counseling approach here, um, but you, I, I can help them begin to identify, as we talked about earlier, the idolatries that exist in their heart. By the way, idols of the heart is, is, a, is a common phrase now, but it actually comes from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 14 where God says of Israel that, that the stumbling block between them and God and over which they were um, disobeying was the idolatries of their inner life. And he calls them there, the prophet calls them idols of their heart. God speaks to the prophet and says, you have, you have things you worship that are more important than me. And so in this renovation and renewal process of discipleship, I just know we're going to find some altars in that person's life built up. And by the way, when you see an idolatry in someone's life, you, you haven't seen the whole thing just because you can identify some things. Um, because as Dr. Zemek says, our hearts are uh, idol factories and uh, we are constantly producing all of these loves that are higher than Christ then you know when you, can, when you want to help someone renew their mind, when the Spirit is going to do this renewing process, it's going to require an admission and confession of those things. So they're going to have to be helped to identify them. How do you identify them? You just course over and pour over what God says about himself, our relationship with him, uh, sanctification, growth, sin, guilt, anything about our spiritual life that God tells us something about 
will help an individual see their flawed thinking and begin to, to be burdened in their heart to be transformed by a renovation of their thinking. How do I know when their thinking has been renovated? When they have yielded in submission to Scripture. Uh, make no mistake about it, the, new, the, the sort of new paradigm for sanctification that, that highlights how you feel about God is a mistaken paradigm. There is no way to know whether or not you've actually obeyed with a right heart until you see the fruit of that in your conduct. You might be able to look into your own attitudes on the inside, but only God sees the heart rightly, and only the scriptures drill down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4.12, and the idea that you gotta deal with how you feel and, and all those things. Look, sanctified emotions are great things, but, but how a person is renovated begins with the mind, putting truth into the mind, and you're renovated when the will of God begins to show up in your life. When the good and acceptable and perfect will of God is ruling over our will. That's how you know. So what you're doing then in this process of a relationship that you have is you're talking together about what you believe, what your current convictions are, and you're beginning to identify from the scriptures where the flaws are and then just go at them one by one. This could be a short discipleship dynamic with a small issue or it could be a, a long-term relationship over the long haul. Um, if you've led them to Christ or they've come to Christ and they don't know anything, you're to teach them to observe all that Christ commanded for as long as he gives you opportunity. And that will be, of course, true of other resources coming in on this person that you're helping. I love that. God uses very often a multiplicity of discipleship dynamics in those relationships. So you're looking for flawed thinking about God and about Christ and salvation and truth. You're drilling down to see where they have higher loves than Christ. And then ultimately, are they submitting their will in faith? The reason we struggle with the flesh is because we struggle with unbelief. All sin at its core and its root is unbelief. And so in discipleship and in the renovation process, the renewal process, you're trying to get at the places where there's unbelief. They may not know it, but it, it's there. They may not see it yet, but it's there. And the scriptures unearth it. <clears throat> Maybe you haven't thought about your own sanctification that way, but that's the reality of it. All of your times where you believe a lie rather than truth or you speak the truth with your mouth, but your will conforms to your flesh and to the evil system around us, that is, at that point, unbelief. You don't truly believe God. You don't believe what he says. You don't believe his promises. You don't rely on his promises. So the renovation process is to strengthen faith. And Abraham was the example of that in Romans chapter 4 where it says there that when he was facing a, how does Paul describe it? A hope against hope moment. In hope against hope, what was the, what was the circumstance? His wife's barren. And she's old, and he's old. He's past child reproducing years. His wife is past those years, and she's old, and he's old, and it's done, and the child of promise isn't here. How's this going to happen? And it says there in Romans 4, in hope against hope, he believed 
and he believed God without wavering. He grew strong in faith without wavering. Those moments right there are the moments of sanctification when you and I really change. That's what you're looking for in a disciple. You're looking for the renewal of their inner life by faith in the promises of God. And uh, as you see the fruit of that bear itself out in their conduct, you know God is then uh, renewing them. This is the Spirit's work. And that, that's essentially this first principle here. The principle of imitation we talked about yesterday drives it all so that you're the model you need to be. And then on a practical level, you want to get down to uh, their faith. You want to get down to how they believe. Do they believe God? How do they believe God? Is it strong faith? In hope against hope, do they believe God when everything is against them? When all circumstances don't make sense? When your feelings, when you don't feel like obeying God? What is the renewal moment in their life? And call them to it. Help them get to it. Pray for them in it. Admonish them when they're unruly. Come alongside them and encourage them when they're faint-hearted. But that's the target. The renewal of their convictions from the inside out by humble faith. That's what you're looking for. Sometimes I think discipleship gets superficial because we, we think someone's changed merely because they've changed some outward, outward dynamic in their life. Or um, they just say they've changed and we don't want to you know, be a, uh, a person who's constantly picking on them. And so we get sort of lost in those little dynamics. Have they really changed? Is there a real change in their life? You know, let's just face it, if we just kind of get uh, transparent here, how long does change take? And, and this might keep you from frustration when you're discipling somebody, too. How long does change take? Oh, uh, there are things in my life the Lord is still working on. I've been a Christian 35 years. He's still working on them because I am painfully stubborn. And he knows that. And he is tremendously and eternally patient and yet determined. He's very determined. And so when you're working on something, you, you don't want a superficial growth in the discipleship process. You don't want to be satisfied with minimal things. You, you only want to be how the Lord is with us. He's determined. He keeps pressing. He sometimes rebukes. He sometimes comes alongside and encourages. He sometimes uplifts when we're at our, at our wit's end and on our last uh, moment. He comes alongside and encourages and helps the weak. He never puts out a smoldering wick. He never breaks a bruised reed in half. We ought to treat people like that and be patient, but determined. Change occurs when you see new humble faith and new power to yield one's will to God's word. And, and of course, in our culture, everything's really more about leaving people alone. It's all individuality. Get out of my kitchen. Stay out of my business. You know what I mean? Business meddling. And, or it's just really all about what's subjective. Well, I feel like I've changed. Yeah, I feel like my relationship with God is really close. Well, what does that mean? You feel like your relationship's close. That means nothing. You could be totally self-deceived. Uh, are your emotions sanctified? Well, if that's the case, sanctified emotions come out of a sanctified life. They come out of a yielded will and humble faith. And so don't be satisfied with less than renewal. Let the Spirit of God do His work and uh, 
put the truth into this young disciple, show the flaws, help them build convictions by moments of yielded faith and humility, and the discipleship process will be effective. And I just think it's important to start here at the renovation principle because sometimes we'll get in a relationship and we'll lose sight of this core issue. Discipleship is effective no matter what else you do if this is happening. So you're an effective discipler. Guys will say to me, I can't disciple. Well, do you know how to have your mind renewed? Then can you help somebody and walk with them through that same process? I mentioned this last night. Well, then you can do this. You can do this. You can work on renovation. Renovate the person's reasoning. Let the Spirit of God do a complete overhaul in how they think through X, Y, Z issue. And then measure the fruit, would you? Help them see the fruit. Encourage them in the moments of growth. It, what comes to mind in that is uh, Paul's letter again to the Thessalonians and what he says to them about them. I turn for a moment to First uh, Thessalonians again. And I absolutely love the way Paul expresses himself here to this beloved church about their growth. And this is just absolutely rich. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, but we brethren having been uh, taken away from you for a short time in person but not in spirit. We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. And then he says this, for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? In other words, you're our joy and crown in the discipleship process, and you're our joy and crown at the thought of what's coming when Christ comes. You absolutely give us tremendous joy. And he will later say, what thanks, what adequate thanks could we properly render for all the joy with which we receive from you, from your growth? This is how discipleship ought to be. It ought to be that the smallest moment of renovation in a disciple's life, receives from you such tremendous tribute of the heart, such joy. I know we can focus on where there needs to be growth, and we are messy in the process of sanctification. But you as an encourager, you as a discipler, when you see a, a moment of faith that's real faith in humility, and the Spirit of God begins to renew that person's thinking on that level you should be over the top about those moments and, and encouraging them. This, yes, there it is. There's the work of Christ by his spirit right there. And, and you now have spiritual renewal happening in that area of your life. It's going to produce great dividends. You're my joy and crown to see it so. What, what adequate thanks could I render to God for that privilege of seeing that in your life? And this, by the way, makes, makes discipleship in the church infectious. I mean, I want to be a part of that group. I want to have a group of men who know my flawed thinking and can come alongside and help my flawed thinking. And then when they see moments of growth, they just get excited. And by the way, this principle would work in your parenting as a dad. You know, it's... Uh, it's easy to be a walking minus sign at home, a big negative, and that's true. I mean, there's a lot of truth being violated in your kids all the time, and you've got to speak to it, 
but you know, <laughs> if you rarely think about the joy and the crown that your children are, or you rarely express to them that it's difficult for you to find the words to thank God enough for them adequately, if you don't say that, if that isn't the, cor- the current of your heart and life, it's going to be pretty difficult to be infectious in that environment for growth, especially when your kids already are so immature and in the teen years particularly they have industrial strength desires and it's really, really difficult. The consequences are huge and embarrassing. Um, it's, it's difficult then to see anything other than the, the dark side of it, but as a discipler, you want an infectious environment and that comes when, like the Apostle Paul, you can say of those when they've grown just a little hey, you exercised real faith and there was real humility and you grew and there's mind renewal happening. That is the process that God wants. And there's even assurance in that. <coughs> Second Peter mentions that when you lack assurance, you're to go back and in diligent faith supply those wonderful behaviors, those good works. And your assurance, your confidence can return at least insofar as you see the power of God working in your life. That's a wonderful thing for people. And we get discouraged with sin. We lose our assurance. We, we lose our confidence that we're even in the Lord. When you get into a season of a real battle with some sinful thing, and it's embarrassing and humiliating or whatever it is, you can lose your assurance pretty quick. And Peter writes in Second Peter 1 to help us with that, to say, look, when you have forgotten your purification from your former sins, when you are really under it, assurance-wise, I want you to bring diligent faith to the task of sanctification, and I want you to get after the process, because if the Spirit's in you, He will begin to renew your mind. You'll see the fruit of it, and some assurance can return and begin to become mature. And so that should be infectious in your discipleship dynamic in the church. And that's my, that's my prayer for you men, is that the mature in the group will be so um, over-the-top blessed by the fruit of the ministry here at the church and, and their own growth in Christ that it begins to become compelling to others who've not yet experienced that. And then eventually that becomes the organic nature of discipleship in the church. And it should be, shouldn't it? I mean, that's how it should be. You should have God working on people and he's appointed others to come to the church and he brings them in his providence to your church. And why did he do that? Because one of you, uh, God wants to to hook you up. He wants to bring a providential circumstance where you're together because you've been being sanctified and you're just absolutely thrilled with it and God then appoints them to be in your life. And if that's happening all over the church, it's infectious. Now let's talk beyond renovation to the principle of cultivation, okay? We'll just call it cultivation. And this is where I think sometimes discipleship falls short. It's going to... in discipleship is going to require, as I mentioned last night, a change in the rhythm of your life. Um, Before this person was in your life, before discipleship was cranked up to a level that it should be, the pace of your life, uh, you, you got used to it. You liked it. And if you say, well, my pace of my life is already overwhelming. I don't know that I could add anything else. Well, then you've got to change priorities because uh, this is not an option. This is your life. Those other things are added to our life and serve the ultimate gospel purpose of Christ's kingdom. This is not added to your life. 
the moment you came to Christ, this is your life. And if that's the case, then you're going to have to learn to cultivate that with those that you have influence over. And to do that, it's going to require some things. First of all, availability. How can you talk truth and teach truth and walk with somebody in the application of truth if you don't make yourself available to them? Which is going to change the rhythm of your life. Now, I don't know that any of us want to say that we would compare with the schedule of the beloved Apostle Paul, who had a concern for all the churches and was regularly making his rounds. And and when he went on his missionary journeys, he had to deal with a tremendous amount of uh, the kind of trauma none of us would want to deal with. In fact, if we had one of the things listed when he writes to the Corinthians, we'd go on the road and talk about that and make a lot of money telling our sob story. He just lists them all, you know, left for dead several times, stone, 39 lashes in the, in the ocean, sharks swimming around, whatever it is. And this, this is the normal course of his life. And he, he says in 2 Corinthians 7, death is working in, in us missionaries so that life can work in you. They're chasing us around. They want to kill us. We're struck down. Even though we're never destroyed, we're always carrying about in our bodies the dying of Jesus. They want to kill us like they killed our Savior. This is the constant thing of our life. Now, none of us want to compare ourselves with that. But it's interesting to me that Paul, when he, when he was a part of the church plant of Ephesus, Acts 20, 31 says, he spent night and day with them with tears to catechize them in the truth. Night and day with tears. You say, well, he's in full-time ministry. Look, of course he's in full-time ministry. No one expects you to have the freedom to give yourself to the church the way that someone would be if the church says, hey, we're going to take over your compensation, uh, Pastor Shane, and we're going to pay, pay for your ministry, and you're going to give yourself completely to this work because we believe you're gifted and called to do that. Of course, not everyone's going to do that very thing. But since it isn't an option, and since a disciple is brought to you by the Lord, a divine appointment, then whatever the flaws in their thinking and whatever needs to be renovated, you have to make yourself available to help with that, whatever that takes. I don't know what it's going to take. You will know as you talk with those that you have influence over, but it is going to take a change in the rhythm of your life. And sometimes it might require some nights and some days with tears. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 11, he says, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And then he says this, who is weak without my being weak and who's led into sin without my intense concern? Intense concern. So my goal isn't to be the Apostle Paul. I wish I could be half as useful. That would be a wonderful life. But my goal is to not squander what time I do have and, you know, just thinking about his sacrifice language. In fact, I might have you turn there, Philippians chapter 2. It's an important passage to ponder this when we're reflecting on it. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2. And you know he'd finished commending a couple of servants. I want to mention to you, by the way, somebody said to me, hey, that principle of killing significance is a good one. I want you to know that we're commanded in Scripture to thank one another for the ministry you have in our life. You're not to take personal significance and glory in those things. We don't seek glory from one another, 
but when you thank someone for the way God's used them, that's a good thing. Paul does that here in Philippians 2. He thanks Timothy and Epaphroditus, and he tells the church to esteem them highly in love for their hard work. But then notice what he says in verse 17. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. And I'm sharing my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you to rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Bring the stories back to me how my being poured out for you has ministered to you. And the language here is is Old Testament language. It's imagery from the Old Testament of a libation offering, a pouring out of the water or the fruit of the vine over the altar down to the last drop, poured out completely. Paul says, hey, even if I am poured out completely upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. Whatever you need, whatever I have time to give, I'll give. If I have to shift my priorities, I'll shift my priorities. Store up treasures in heaven where thieves can't steal and moth and rust can't destroy. It's not merely talking about money. In fact, that's not really the point. Money serves the treasures in heaven. The point is, are you investing in the things that promote what is eternal? Men, souls are eternal. When you stand in front of Christ, the only thing that will matter is your spiritual influence. That's it. What you did as a career, unless it was glory for Christ and used to his honor, it doesn't matter. Your career, your family, the number of children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren you have, how many churches you served, how many Bible studies you were part of, uh, if they're not done for eternal value, it doesn't matter. And so souls is really all you, you want to be concerned with. So if you're looking at your priorities and you're saying, well, I need to be available, but man, I'm already swamped. Take it before the Lord. Pray about it. That's what I would do. I'd, I'd go before the Lord and say, I don't have any time, Lord, as I can see it. I look at my schedule three ways to Sunday. I've had some friends look at it. I just don't have another minute. I'm in a season of life that's just absolutely crammed, and I'm worn out, and I'm exhausted. I can barely discipline my kids. I can barely have the proper kind of cultivation in my marriage. But I know this, Lord, you call me to disciple and be discipled. You call me to serve for the sake of souls and do things of eternal value. All of these things are a priority in my life. I cannot let that go by the wayside. I cannot squander that. So I'm laying it before you, and I'm saying, what I don't see, help me see. If I have to see my priorities differently, I have to see them differently. Because cultivation requires that I give time to the teaching of Scripture to other people, to the helping them apply them to the flaws in their thinking, to help them build new convictions, and to walk with them so that their faith is encouraged and strengthened and challenged to grow. Some disciples, they just latch on, and you don't have to do much at all. It's very little hand-holding. They catch on early, and they just go. Others require night and day with tears. What are you willing to give? This cultivation principle involves sacrifice of the things you sometimes 
uh, shouldn't give. In other words, if you have things in your schedule that absolutely cannot move, you're still going to put them on the chopping block sometimes. You are. Have you ever thought about your priorities? Sometimes we lay them out vertically. Oh, it's how do we say it typically? God, then, then family, then you know, church, and then work, and, and extracurricular. And when you're trying to make a decision on Saturday as to whether you ought to uh, disciple this guy whom you haven't met in two weeks or go to your son's soccer game, uh, you know, that vertical priority list doesn't really help. Because if God is first on the priority list of the vertical, which he, of course, is by his own revelation, he's first at everything, well, then, if you try to apply that to some practical decision on Saturday, you're going to pick the discipleship relationship all the time. That's not helpful for your son. And so, I don't, I don't really find it helpful on the practical level to decide things by that vertical priority structure. I actually, actually like to look at it like this. So, so, it's all horizontal. God gives you the Bible, and he saves you, gives you his scripture, and says, I want you to be what the Bible calls you to be, all of it. Right now, I want you to work on all of it, all at once. I want you to work on being a dad and, and a servant in your community and a faithful citizen and, and a godly influence to your neighbors and a, a good husband and a servant in the church and a discipler and a worshiper of me. I want you to do all those things right now as I call you to them. And there's no dimmer switch on any of those principles. It's all full blast. Here it is. And you say, well, that's just flat out overwhelming. How could I do all that? Well, you can't. You can't. That's why there's a process. But in the process, it seems better to me to just sort of look at each area of your life as a habit. You know, as, as a habit. You just walk in the fence of your life all the time. How am I doing over here? How am I doing over here? Sometimes there's a hole in the fence Satan could exploit, and someone comes and tells you about it. Hey, you got a, you got a leak over here. You got you to patch that up. Okay, so I shift my priorities over to this area. And then when I've strengthened that area, I find out, oh, I've got, got a couple areas over here that are atrophying, and I've got to get to exercising that muscle. And so I shift my life to move over to that. And in the seasons of life, that's exactly how it works. And so that's how you ought to think about when it comes to discipleship priorities. Somebody in your life is a squeaky wheel. They have a lot of needs. You have to be available. You're going to sacrifice some things. And I, if I were you, I'd involve your spouse in the prayers for it. You know, if I had to be away from my kids in order to be sacrificial and available to a spiritual relationship that was going on here, well, this is no less spiritual, but if I had to be away from them, I involve them in it. I want you to pray. I'm meeting with somebody. It's a very important meeting. Uh, I'm going to be teaching the Word of God to them. I want to see them grow. I want you to pray. When I get back, I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. I can't give you details, but I'm going to tell you how the Lord worked in my heart and in their life. And we're going to pray together about that. You're going to make sacrifices. You're going to have to. But if all you ever do is say, well, hey, the rhythm of my life can't be interrupted. The pace of my life is what it is. And by the way, I'm so busy that I just can't fit anything else in. You're not willing to take it to the Lord in prayer. You're, you're going to miss out on usefulness that the Lord wants to give to you in the discipleship process. So you don't want to miss out on that. Availability, sacrifice, this is absolutely crucial in building a discipleship relationship. It means that you're going to have to talk about your sanctification. In the cultivation process, you not only have personal sacrifice and and personal availability, but you're going to have to have personal transparency. 
To cultivate a relationship, you're going to have to talk about how growth happens with you. A relationship where the Word of God and its work in you is vivid and graphic. It's, it's measurable. If you tell someone you need, to, you need to believe God for this and this will be the fruit of your life, they need to see that fruit in your life. And you need to be able to talk about how, how that is working in your life. And sometimes in those relationships, discipleship breaks down because you don't want to be transparent. As I said in that first session, it's just too, it gets too close to home. Man, I just want to encourage you again on this issue of your, your own sacrifice and availability. Let them into your life. Let the people you're influencing, insofar as it's that kind of relationship, let them into how you walk with God. And that's going to include very real Christianity, which means your failures. It's not about sitting around like the old model was and just let's just peel back the layers, you know, the old Larry Crabb model and, and just, you know, gush about what's terrible in our life. As I said, that could quickly become a violation of Ephesians 5 where you're speaking of secret things and you, it's evil and you shouldn't speak of it. It's not helpful to anybody to put that stuff in their mind. But what about just a general admission about uh, how struggles in the spiritual life work with you and how, how difficult battles have been for you and how you're able to get a handle on it and, and even the areas still you haven't yet gotten a handle on? How about that kind of drawing in of a disciple? Um, in my experience watching churches, Especially, and I'll, I'll say it this way because we're here at Faith Community, especially well-taught churches, gospel-rich environments. In my experience, the men of the church can become so sophisticated in their idea of ministry that personal interaction over weaknesses does not happen anymore. Everybody is viewed as a spiritual giant. Everybody is viewed as having a mature approach to sanctification. And perhaps it is true to some degree. But pride comes in the backside of that maturity and suddenly we're so sophisticated that there you are standing around at a, at a men's retreat and somebody comes in and says, so tell me, do you guys ever struggle with this? Oh, oh hey, what, what, what are you talking about? It's assumed that everyone is already arriving and doing the work. And so it would be an encouragement to, to you today to say, look, if we're going to be in such a truth-rich environment, we need to make sure that it never becomes so sophisticated that the discipler um, is not able to talk through the ongoing spiritual battle that they are now facing in this season of their life. You don't want the assumption that the mature in the group do not struggle. That's not encouraging to anybody. Because it assumes something that's, it teaches an assumption that shouldn't be. No one ever arrives. We are battling till glory, till we meet Christ. And yesterday's battle is gone, today's new battle has come. I'm not battling the same things that the younger, immature disciple is battling, but I'm battling, and it's a struggle. And sometimes I'm not quite there, because God is doing a sanctifying work in me. Listen, if you've gotten so sophisticated in your teaching of other people or counseling other people that you're not able to articulate your limitations and your weaknesses, then you have, you have become proud and too sophisticated. If some young disciple tells, asks you, so what are your weaknesses? Easy. That should be simple if you're mature. 
Not that you see everything God sees, but you know what he's working on you right now with. You know that. Maybe you have an immaturity in an area that you didn't think you would, and you're a little embarrassed about it. You, you need to be able to, to know that. Why? Because you're thinking about it. You're battling it. You, you can articulate that. You've gone to work against it. Your energy is engaged. Um, <clears throat> it's sad when a, when a very, very mature church uh, begins to go down the backside of that and no one's talking about spiritual weaknesses anymore. No one can be confronted. No one is allowed to talk about those things. That is tragic when the reputation of the ministry is that it's really robust. Uh, because pretty soon that becomes in itself uh, infectious in the wrong way and spreads through the church. Now no one really talks about things on anything other than a superficial level. We all say we're growing. The pulpit's strong. People are, you know, coming. But no one is really discipling at that level anymore. That would be a grief. Well, one last principle ought to be obvious to you, and that's supplication. Supplication. We've got to bathe this whole process in prayer for one another. Let's just admit, we don't pray enough. The reason discipleship fails in churches quite often is just we're just not praying people. We pray now and again, but we're just not fervently praying for one another. Fervently. And it has to start with the mature of the group. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Um, we ought to be in constant prayer for one another and one another's needs. Find time to do it. Find a place to do it. Uh, or just do it all day long informally. Uh, we sometimes default to the idea that we have informal prayer. Oh, I'm just, I'm just in the spirit of prayer. You know, pray, pray without ceasing. That's what I do. And then, you know, if the scorecard were brought up by the Lord, I wonder... I wonder how much informal prayer is thrown up throughout the day when we told everybody that's, that's really our prayer life. It's informal. It's going up all the time. Really? What's the scorecard from the divine perspective? Or sometimes we say to people, hey, I'm going to pray for you. Do we? How many promises to pray are never fulfilled in a single Sunday? That's hard. That's hard. I've said those words to people. I'll pray for you. Didn't pray for them at all. Didn't pray for them at all. And you know, later when you see them, it's just really the Lord putting you against the wall when that person says, hey, this situation turned out. Thanks for praying for me. Oh, mm. Yes, brother. Mm. <laughs> mm. So glad. So happy. But you know, right in that moment, you haven't supplicated for them at all. And discipleship fails because prayer fails. Prayer drives this. Prayer is, I'm not talking about how we envision prayer happened in Paul's life or the Puritan era uh, when men did pray for hours on end because there was no one in the world moving or talking. You had hours on end to pray. In our world, we, we don't have that kind of thing. But surely we have used that as an excuse to be lazy and discipleship fails. So we've got to be in each other's lives at that level and pray at that level. Write down just a couple other things in about 30 seconds' time. Courage. Your discipleship process needs to be infused with courage. That is to say, you have, you're not a hireling. You will most gladly spend and be expended for that person's soul 
2 Corinthians 12, 15. You have courage. They need to see that you are trusting in God and you're courageous. None of their mess is going to freak you out or send you packing. So encouraging when someone knows you bring such courage to the fight. Then patience with the process. This is a process. Do not grow impatient. Don't do it. Just remember that sanctification is a lifelong work. Your disciples need to know that you know that. The hardworking farmer waits for his crop. We, we till the soil. We plant the seed. We wait for the Lord. We're patient. And, and then a willingness to share responsibility for spiritual endeavors, you know. Don't blame issues on others. Just take responsibility, bear responsibility together in your discipleship relationship for spiritual inadequacy. If every time you have failed in the discipleship dynamic, uh, it's their fault, or every time they may make a mistake, it's because they, were, they misunderstood you, you might have given wrong counsel. You might have given bad counsel. You might be in the moment very emotional and you didn't really check. You didn't do your due diligence and you gave them some wrong counsel and they took that home and it caused some trouble and then they come to you and you say, well, you just must have misunderstood me. Beware the person who, who has a circle of people they interact with and everyone under, misunderstands them. Beware that person. They either are the poorest communicator on the planet or they're lying. They're blame-shifting. Discipleship requires that you work together to build the relationship and clarify things. And when you've given bad counsel, own it. Own your bad counsel. You're going to give bad counsel sometimes. We're not prepared to give every answer in the moment the way we ought. I remember uh, in my Air Force days, the crew chief was an agnostic. And man, he could put Christians to the test. He could peel them apart. And I'd been warned about that. I was a fairly new Christian. I didn't know much at all. But my dad had sent me this wonderful study Bible. And, and uh, so I was learning. And he would come every day with questions. and just hack me apart. Well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And I couldn't answer it. But I would go home and I'd say to my wife, honey, I, this guy, just, there's too many questions I can't answer. He'll never come to Christ, you know. And uh, she would say, well, you have that study Bible, just, just take, take that Bible and just list out passages. So every day I would take him an eight and a half by ten sheet of passages and say, well, you ask this question, here's some texts, you know. And he would come back and he'd say, mm, that's some interesting ones in there. Wow, that was, I didn't know that was in the Bible. All right, what about this? And I'd go home and I'd do it again. And for an, almost a year... It just worked like that. I learned, he learned. I, t- I gave him some really bad verses, sometimes, you know, and he would pick, up, pick on them. Well, that didn't apply. What are you trying to do? There must be mistakes in the Bible. You know, he'd use it as a basis for doubt. I'd be like, ah, oh, you're right. That was a bad verse. Okay, that was a bad passage. Um, but you know what? The Lord, the Lord used it, and uh, he's a dear friend today. He's been a believer 30 years and loves Christ, and we, every time we chat, we talk about that story, you know, uh, about how he was coming against the truth and but I had to take some responsibility for some bad counsel and uh, that I gave him and sometimes we need to do that and in a discipleship relationship you need to be willing willing to share that responsibility and own those things it's an encouragement to a disciple so vital strategies I'm not I'm not giving you anything more practical than that because you can do anything and everything these principles just drive through the whole thing renovation cultivation and then 
supplication for the prayer that you bring to it. And then just some of those extras there, courage and patience, availability, sacrifice, and then taking personal responsibility, being encouragement to the men. So There's so much more, of course, we could, we could say about discipleship, but it doesn't matter how a relationship begins. If you just go down the core of it with these, they become the practice of your life. God will use you. He'll use you mightily. And, and might I add that if you see someone with a character quality that you admire, hound them. Just go right up to them. My wife and I annoyed so many people in the church, older people. We just walked right up to them. Hey, we see how you interact as husband and wife. We're having conflict. We can't solve it. We'd like to come over to your house. Just tell us tonight we're going to come over for about six weeks. Would you help us? We would say that. And one, one couple... Uh, we went there every Wednesday night, and we could tell it was a strain on their schedule, but we weren't taking no for an answer. Uh, we didn't know how to take no for an answer. We were young and immature, but we learned from them in our, in our family life. And don't be shy. Just go to somebody and say, I, I admire this quality. How did you get there? I need that for these reasons in my life, and will you please help me? Give me any time you can and, and help me. And that, that just, you know, will... Take off, Lord willing, in your ministry like, like a fire as it should. So, All right, we have a Q&A panel after lunch. Let me pray, and well, I'm going to just thank the Lord for our time, and then somebody's going to come up here, I think, Randy, maybe, and pray for our meal, but I won't steal his thunder on that. But let's just ask God to embed these things in our hearts. Lord, we know what you've said in your word. These principles are familiar to us, but sometimes we don't think about how to apply them to the context of discipleship. But I pray for these men and for our hearts as your children and, and for the church, faith community, and for our own church at Grace Emmanuel. I pray that these principles wouldn't be mere platitudes in our hearts, but, but the anchors for our soul. These are the reasons we do what we do. These, these are the drivetrain. This is it's the undercurrent of our life to give ourselves as a living sacrifice to you. And that means the renewal of our mind. Lord, we think so wrongly in so many ways. We have such shallow convictions and at other times just flat out error in our convictions. And we need to see our reasoning renewed in divine things, a renewing of our inner life. And then that will be the basis for how we'd be used to help someone else. Help us identify the flaws. Help us to learn to disrupt the rhythm of our life for your sake and for eternal treasures. And not be so selfish and petty with our schedule. Or even in those seasons of overwhelmed labor when we're exhausted. Give us energy in the discipleship process. Help us to see that even at the end of an exhausting work life and labor we can find spiritual rejuvenation in pouring ourselves out one final hour of the day to someone who needs us. May we do that with faithfulness to our families and anyone in our sphere of influence that you give to us. Lord, we love you, and, and we wish we had loved you more every day the, the way we ought, but we long to, and by your Spirit, you can strengthen us in these things. So help these men, help this be an effective time, and in the Q&A, may we flesh it out as we ought, uh, and all of it for your renown and your name and, 
and that we might be better disciples of you, the master discipler. We pray it in your name. Amen. Thank you, Ms. Jerry.